Okay, so uh, man, I, like I said last week, I'm super grateful for our time away. Alex, my wife, and I were away for a couple of weeks and got back uh, last Sunday, and it was just sweet. I'm thankful for the rhythm that we were able to have to be able to pull back for a few weeks and to kind of reset together, and I appreciate y'all prayed for us. I'm grateful for it. And uh, like I said, we're going to be entering into our final week in the summer series. What we've been doing is we've been navigating through First uh, and Second Samuel, which is uh, in part, a bulk of it is around the life of, of King David uh, and the buildup of that and kind of the reality of what we find in the life of David is we see a good bit of his narrative, uh, the, kind of the facts, the moments that happened within his life. What's beautiful about his life is that we also get married to that, this merger of his heart and some of the uh, realities of what's going on inside of him. And so we see from a practical standpoint the narrative in First and Second Samuel and then get the heart, kind of his journal entries in the Psalms. And so every, every week, we've been, this summer, we've been going through an aspect of his life and then a Psalm that's tied to that. And so we're going to be doing that the same today. And we're going to go through one that's not an easy one. It's one that I've heard oftentimes has been overlooked in the life of David and then First and Second Samuel. And so uh, it's a section that talks about some dark stuff. Uh, we're not going to spend all of our time here, but I, there will be a mention of some sexual abuse that happens here and we're going to walk through that, and we're going to provide some hope on the other side. And so we're going to see a few things as we get through Second uh, Samuel uh, 13 and 14, that David's life is, his, his family life is unraveling in a horrible way in real time. We're going to watch it play out. There's this fallout that's becoming pretty clear in, in the life of David and his family. So we get that. We're going to see some unraveling. Uh, and then secondly, we're going to be seeing uh, a reminder of a, a truth around parenting, that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. We're going to see this painful reality that we can also, oftentimes forget until we have kids and we see it play out in our own children's life, that the more is caught than taught. You can teach your kids to live this way and then functionally live this way. And what they're going to learn is not this, but this. They're going to learn uh, what you're doing and not what you're saying. And so we see that happen uh, sadly in the life of David. And I get it myself. Um, my, my sons will talk a certain way and I'll, 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 I'll respond to them and then I'll step back and be like, dang, they are acting just like dad. You know, we feel that. We see that. We see the mirror of parenting and children playing out. We see it in the same way here. And so as a reminder... It wasn't long ago before David uh, uh, violated Bathsheba. It wasn't long ago when David uh, had an encounter with Nathan. And just a sidebar, I, I thought that Nick did a fantastic job walking through a very difficult text. Yeah, for sure. Um, and, and so we, we saw David have uh, violated Bathsheba, ends up murdering uh, Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, and so we've seen all of that over the last couple of weeks. We've seen that, that David didn't govern his passions. We see that David didn't heed the law of God around marriage. We see that David didn't restrain his desires, and we see that he leveraged his social power to get whatever he wanted. And so we enter 2 Samuel verse uh, chapter 12, and there's this rebuke that Nathan has of David, which will play out in the following uh, text. And so in, in 2 Samuel 12, verse 10, it says this. This is Nathan, the prophet, encountering David. 
in exposing David's sin around Bathsheba and Uriah. He says, now therefore, and Drew mentioned last week, now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the son. So we see this prophecy come to pass in the upcoming text here. And all this, the wake of David's sin led to the suffering of many. And we're going to begin to feel that pretty painful. And so in 2 Samuel, we're going to get into chapter 13. I'm going to read some of this text. Some of it I, I didn't feel was going to be best with the wide variety of age in this room. And so you can read all of this later, but I will read 2 Samuel 13, starting at verse 1. Um, it says this, now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar. For she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shema, and David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. We'll stop there for a second. So time had passed, and now David's son, Amnon, like his father, hadn't governed his passions. And like David, his son Amnon had not heeded God's word for marriage. And like David, his son didn't restrain his desire. And like David, his son Amnon now leveraged his social power to get what he wanted. See, again, we pass off who we are. And so we meet these four characters. We meet Absalom. Absalom was one of David's David uh, Absalom was his third son from his fourth wife. Again, it gets real messy here, so try to connect the dots here. So we have Absalom, third son, fourth wife. We see uh, Tamar, who is the sister of Absalom. We see Amnon, who is David's oldest son from his, obviously, second wife. And then you have Jonadab, who is Amnon's Cousin. So that's who we've just met in these few verses. Jonadab uh, supported the passion of Amnon, and, and he recognized that Amnon was attracted to his sister. I know it's messy, but nonetheless, it's the reality of the text here. And so it says that Jonadab is a crafty friend. He was crafty. And so the language here is referring to a, a serpent in the text. Just like the serpent in Genesis 3 was crafty. Likewise, there's a serpent that's happening here. And he's saying, like the serpent in the garden, did God really say these things? Did God? And so he's pulling on Amnon and tempting him to fulfill what his soul wants. And David, as an indulgent father, Amnon knew that David was going to give him what he wants. We continue to read in verse 4. It says this. <clears throat> And he said to him, O son of the king, this is Jonadab, king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight. 
that I might see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came in to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. And the story continues. You can read between the lines about what happens next. See, these following verses that we have just read and the following ones are some of the most tender verses in the entirety of the scripture. We can't skip them. We can't skip the realities of what are happening here. And the reason why is we have to face it. We need to face it. See, if we skip a story like Tamar, we tell those who experience similar stories like Tamar that their story can be skipped. We can't do that. We can't. We can't do that. I thank God that in our generation we're starting to speak up about stories like Tamar and to see justice occur. See, without going into graphic detail, he sees, Amnon sees Tamar as an object of lust. He knew that she was forbidden, but his intent that led to caused him to take her. We see four times in the text that there was taking and taking and taking and taking that occurred in these few verses. The text says that he violated her. So again, you can read the details at another time, but like his father, he used his social strength to get what he wanted. And the text here goes and it speaks to the fact that, that after this act happened, this violation happened, that Amnon turns on her and begins to shame her and tells her with disgust, get out of my room as if she was the one who instigated the whole thing. It's a devastating story. So we can't enter a text like this and not speak to such pain and injustice. I know we all... Uh, are well aware of atrocities like this, some all too well, some all too personal. But I want to tell you that God sees, God cares, God weeps. As I've just been preparing, I've, this has been one of those texts that I, I didn't want to just fast forward. I know that there's pain in this room, firsthand experience, that God also, not only does he weep, but he also will deal justly. See, whether it's sexual abuse or whether it's spiritual abuse or whether it's emotional abuse, God is not aloof to such things. See, we carry God's heart by supporting those who have been abused. See, God is just at his core, and he will bring forth justice. We see it on the cross, and we see it fully in his second coming. See, the pain is a direct reflection. As we look at this, it's mirrored stories of what David did to Bathsheba and what Amnon did to Tamar. The apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. He didn't govern his passions. David didn't, and his son followed suit. He didn't heed the law of God around marriage, and his son followed suit. And he didn't restrain his desire, and his son followed suit. So as we read this text, the, the, the sons of David and their colossal failure, what is it doing in us? What is it reminding us of? It's that we long for the son of David, the Messiah, to come because the brokenness of David and his lineage are just not enough. And it causes us to yearn for something bigger, something greater, learning for a true king to come and govern us with justice and righteousness. And the story continues, verse 23. After two years, after this violation occurred, Absalom had sheep shearers of Baal Hazar, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. I'll fast forward to 28, and it says, Then Absalom commanded his servants, 
Mark when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you, be courageous, be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. So what we see is two years have passed, and Absalom in his own way takes on his form of justice, and he chooses to kill the one who violated his sister. You know, we need to fight for the justice of others, and when authorities are needed to be contacted, yes, that needs to occur. But he tried to do something that only God can do. He tried to bring forth a form of justice that was imperfect. It was two years of silence that Tamar experienced all of the weight of this. See, there is a justice and a vengeance we long for that only can be found in God's full justice. When he says, vengeance is mine, he means it. So what we find in the following chapters, the story of uh, Absalom continues. We see this unraveling of David's kingdom. We're, we're trying to get to this point where David is kind of reeling at the fact of what his actions have led to occur, all of these negative things that have taken place. We see that Absalom begins to creep into taking the kingdom of David. And his family begins to just fracture, and it becomes more and more broken. His family begins to erode. Before his eyes, he sees a mirror of brutality. Before his eyes, he sees a mirror of unbridled sexual lust and passion. So the question is, how does he respond? How would you respond if you were David in that moment? How does one carry such guilt and such pain that David is experiencing? Again, Bathsheba violated, Tamar violated, Uriah killed, Amnon killed, Absalom ripping the kingdom away from his hands in real time. And it would be very easy to enter into a place of deep despair. I don't deserve to live. I can't imagine living my life. I've broken too many things to continue my life. That could be very easily entering into this place of deep despair torn up over his choices, torn up over the choices that his kids have made. And it's here where we enter the psalm, Psalm 13. We're not exactly sure when exactly this was written, but we know that David wrote it. See, we see about uh, this psalm in Psalm 13, it's a psalm of laments. And so in the uh, following verses, we're going to read a lament that David says, a lament is a necessary part of growing followers of Jesus. For some of us, we suppress lament. We have pain that enters our life, sorrow because we all experience it, and we suppress it. And we, we prevent opportunities where we can actually grow and experience God in the midst of sorrow and hardship. And it's in lament that we're actually able to engage aspects of difficulty in our life. To be defined, lament is a biblical way to process grief, sadness, and sorrow. It gives us the opportunity to face and name our pain and then to create space for future hope, all without glossing over tragedy. So the goal of lament is to allow sadness and sorrow to be brought to God, to allow his presence to be a place of healing, and to allow him to actually enter into that aspect of our life. See, we don't have to carry our sadness and sorrow on our own. He invites us to lament and to grieve, and that's what we find here. Psalm 13, verse 1, and in light of everything that David is feeling, I hope we feel the weight of the fracture of his family and life. We read this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? 
How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. There's this moment of lament and sorrow that David feels, a despair with God that he writes. The presence of God feels far from him, feeling his own shame, feeling anxiety around his own life, feeling pain over the heritage that he's now seeing broken before him, feeling it from within and feeling it from his circumstances around him. See, though he is deeply broken, What's unique, and we talked about this since the first week we talked about this series, is that his posture amidst such sorrow and and difficulty, though he is a deeply broken man, his posture towards God is unique and worth mentioning. Not that he's strong, but his honesty and his authenticity that he brings before God is so profound for us to see. See, he felt alone. He felt alone here. He talks about it. He, and we know this prior to several weeks ago. We talked about how he was running for his life and that Saul was chasing him down and he was hiding in a cave, hoping that he would live another day. He knows what it was like to be alone. He knew what it was like to be misunderstood. He knew all of those things. And yet he also knew that he had made some choices that caused him to be in a place of deep darkness and brokenness. See, this psalm is exposing this place of disorientation. There are three phases of life that we all experience, and we enter back into these at times. There's orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So disorientation is where David feels in this moment in this psalm. But to recap all three of those, we have orientation. And orientation is a place uh, where everything seems to be making sense in life. Things are going good. Things are flourishing. You feel uh, like, like things are moving in the direction that you want them to go. And it feels good. You feel grateful for where you are. That would be uh, orientation. We love this phase. The second would be disorientation. A place of disorientation when we feel we have sunk into a pit. Disorientation around where God is. Maybe his presence feels far from us. Maybe we feel confused on why life is what it is. Maybe it's because of sickness or because of a situation, betrayal that takes place in our life. We feel disoriented. We feel confused about life. Disappointment sets in, unmet expectations. I thought life would go this way. I thought I'd have kids at this time. I thought I'd have this job. I thought I'd have this thing. And man, life is totally different than what I thought it would be. So we can feel disoriented around why we are where we are, and we can feel frustrated with God. There's also a disorientation because of our choices. Because of the choices that we made, mistakes that we have made, we can feel the results and the pain of that within our life. And David feels this now as he reflects upon the sorrow of his family. Some of you are here. And four times in this text, we hear this phrase, how long, O Lord? It's this yearning to, to be recalibrated, this yearning to find hope again. How long, O oh Lord? Again, some of us might feel this around sickness or betrayal or loss or stray children or getting let go or dreams being squashed. We feel this in life. So we have orientation, we have disorientation, and we have reorientation. It's a place where we realize that God has lifted our soul. Our circumstances might not be different. Get a perspective 
a hope-filled perspective that God is here in my midst, that even though I walk through this dark valley, you are with me, and there's a hope that he hasn't left me. There's a hope that he's holding me together. It's a reorientation around God. And it's here where David feels this disorientation. Again, lamenting is the spiritually mature response to sadness and sorrow. And David is well acquainted of these things. But it doesn't end with lament. The psalm continues. It says this in verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. It is here we find the great hope of the gospel. See, it's our, our merit is not the thing that will bring us through life. It is the mercy and loving kindness of God that will hold us and sustain us. This is the beauty of the posture of David. His life is in shambles. His family is falling apart. But his posture is not clinging to his circumstances. It's in this place of even repentance where he's turning and trusting. I trust that you hold me even if I can't hold my family together. He's trusting in the loving kindness of God. You know, he carried a, a deep and abiding trust in the loving kindness of God. This word loving kindness is translated in the Hebrew of hesed. Hesed. So hesed is hard to translate. If you look into this more deeply, there's multiple versions that give multiple different re- renderings of what this word should say. And so it can be translated as love. It can be translated as generosity. It can be translated as loyal commitment. But it's this trusting in the, the God who keeps and sustains and holds us together. It's what Moses cried out when he encountered God in Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord God, uh, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in love, abounding in said. What David is saying here is, I trust in your generous kindness. I will remember the generosity of God, though I am deeply troubled. He's letting go of of trying to control his life and actually clinging to the character of God. You know, when we read something like this, we have to be careful with our own self-righteousness. As I read this, I felt this for myself. We live in a culture that is filled with self-righteousness. We don't wear religious garments like the Pharisees once did, but we live in a culture that is deeply pharisaical in how we function. The way it plays out is that we, we believe that our way is the right way. Our way is the right way, that anybody that believes with me, I support and I think are, are relatively good. Those that disagree with me are not good and maybe even evil. And we put upon people what is good and what is evil based off of what we think and how we define things. We're willing to extend mercy to who we deem needs mercy And we don't give mercy to those that don't deserve it. I get it. I feel it. I mean, even going through this with David, part of me is like, man, God, you're you're being too kind to David. Like at some point, it's like, Dagom, smite him. Like he is jacked out. I don't know if you feel that, but we can have that. We can have that feeling where we begin to kind of get in the the pilot. uh, We get in the seat of the pilot and we begin to feel like we can control what God and how God offers mercy and extends mercy and loving kindness. We can have this internal gauge of who we think deserves God's loving kindness and who doesn't. Man, we enter into that space. That's a a scary space to enter into. 
They begin to get in the control seat of what God should and shouldn't do. We can be very quick to reject mercy for David, or we can be very quick to reject mercy for ourselves or for others. And here's where the gospel speaks so clearly to us. David had a general understanding of the mercy of God. He knew the general understanding of his loving kindness, but he didn't understand the depth of God's loving kindness and mercy. See, God became human and binded himself to humanity forever in the coming of Jesus. Jesus is now the ultimate loyal love and the ultimate commitment and the ultimate faithful love to us. He is the one that exudes God's generosity and exudes God's love and exudes God's eternal loyalty. See, the cross communicates that God is just. God is not one who ignores sin. He's not one who winks at it without question. He cares so deeply for he sent his son who willingly took on our sin in our place. He doesn't wink at it. He doesn't hide it under the rug. He doesn't ignore it. He deals with it fully. And so which means we can either place our guilt, place our, uh, our, our shame upon Jesus and him exchange our guilt and our shame for his goodness or we can carry it ourselves, and we will stand before God, and we receive the just judgment of God. See, because of the cross, God places our blame on Jesus, and this great exchange occurs. Our rebellion for his goodness. So it's not based off of how we see merit. It's based on how we approach God. See, therefore, all who repent truly and trust in this has said, this loving kindness of Jesus. And there's a place for you. That's the beauty of the good news of Jesus, that it's not based off you working your life in such a way to prove yourself to God. It is based on us trusting in the hesed, the loving kindness of God. This is the nature of forgiveness, that by the blood of Jesus, he rescues us from the grip of sin. By the blood of Jesus, he erases our sin. He sees it as far as the east is from the west. By the blood of Jesus, he takes our rap on himself. Corey Tim Boom, who wrote The Hiding Place, uh, I was reading this this summer, and she has this very interesting story. If you're not familiar with her story, I'll give you like a 30-second recap. News, uh, spoiler alert, you know, like you, if you haven't read this book, then it's on you because it's been out for a, a minute. So any, anything I share with you, don't get mad at me for not reading it prior to. So she was a Christian who lived during the time of Nazi Germany, uh, the time of Hitler. And she hid Jews in her home. And she ended up being imprisoned. She ended up going to a concentration camp. Uh, and she ended up coming out on the other side. And, and, uh, and on the other side, she was able to kind of share her story. So there was a time when she was sharing in an audience, and sharing about the realities and the pain and the sorrow of what took place. Uh, after she was finished, one of the officers who was in the concentration camp came up to her and said this. It was at a church service in Munich that I saw him, the former SS man, who had stood guard at the shower room door in the processing center of Ravensbrück. He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there, the room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-blanched face. And he came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. 
How grateful I am for your message, he said. To think that as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine, and I, who had preached so often to people in this place, the the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ had died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I prayed, forgive me and help me to forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. And so I again, I breathed a silent prayer. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give your forgiveness. As I took his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, shoulder along my arm and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him, while into my heart sprang a love for this stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not on our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges, but on his, on Jesus's. When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives us, along with the command, the love itself. And this thing called forgiveness and called mercy is so real, and it's not based off of our merit. It's not based off of what we can do and what we cannot do. David says, in your steadfast love, unfailing love, how good it would be for us to stop defining ourselves by our successes, by our failures, by our past, by our resume? Is it true of us that we could say, regardless of all of that, I trust and your trust and your unfailing love. See, it is Christ that defines mercy to us. I will trust in your steadfast love. I mean, it's this picture of me walking with my young son Rowan. And we entering uh, someone I heard a story similar to this this summer. But it's happened to me multiple times. If your parent, it's happened to you. You can do an intersection, and your hand just gets a little tighter around their hands, right? Because you don't trust them, because they might just bolt, and they don't see the cars zooming. They don't, they don't see the details that you see. And so you hold their hand a little tighter. Now, if he flails, he's not going anywhere. If he holds my hand back, he's not going anywhere. Like, regardless of what his hand's doing, my hand is secure, holding him together, it's this security, and that's what has said is for us, that God is holding and caring for your life, regardless of the circumstances around you, that he's holding you in this place of loyalty, this place of steadfast love, this place of patient care and endurance. I will trust in the steadfast love of God. This is the posture that David is providing to us. Though it's faulted and though it's marred, there is truth that we can gather that we can live our lives in such a way that we remember that God is holding us, that picture of security in Christ, that he holds you and he cares for you and nothing can take you out of his hand, is a relief to us that we can live our life not trying to prove ourselves, not trying to work our way out to define ourselves by this certain thing, but actually resting in his care. I will trust in the steadfast love of God. Friends, when everything is going sideways, when you've made decisions that have jacked up your life, 
when you, when you are now seeing the implications of those decisions played out for you, when your children are making decisions they didn't think that they would make, where can we stand? We can trust in the steadfast love of God, the mercy and generous loving kindness of God. You are not the summation of what you produce. You are deeply loved by Jesus. What about your past? Repent. Reconcile where you need to and throw it at Jesus and allow him and his cross to wash you. What about your failures? We have many. Allow the cross to take it and allow the mercy of Jesus to wash you. What about your shame? I mean, that voice is loud, I get it. But the loving kindness of God is louder. The loving kindness of God is more secure. Allow him to speak over you again and again and again and say with David in your own brokenness, I will trust in the loving kindness of God. It's the beauty of this psalm. It's exposing lament, sorrow, grief of his circumstances, even self-imposed. And yet it's clinging to the fact that there's only one who can wash me. There's only one who can heal me. There's only one that can restore me. And it's the loving kindness of God. Let us allow that to remind us of the deep, deep love of Jesus. Amen? Let's pray. That picture of a father holding our hands is maybe more real than we want to admit. And we give you thanks for your security. We give you thanks that your love is not like love that we learned growing up, that was based off of if we do X, then we will receive love. No, it's beyond that. What can separate us from your love? Nothing. And we give you thanks for it. And I pray that you would wash us and remind us, Lord, that the, the toughest dude in here to feel, one who is, feels so broken by their past, I pray you would allow us to, to feel the height and width and length and of the Jesus that surpasses knowledge. Thank you that you're a caring father, protecting father, a refuge. We give you thanks for this good news to us. Fresh, Lord, by your spirit. In Jesus' name.